I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch Insulot. Uh, it's Lancelot, but he's an incel. Okay, yeah, no, that that works. We're definitely going to talk about how Lancelot is a serial killer in this movie, <laughs> and very scary. Uh, he's like, I, he's like, I'm very much in love with you. I'd love to have sex with you, but I have too much honor. <laughs> yeah, no, if there was an HR department in the in the round table, I, I imagine most of the complaints would be about Lancelot. Mm-hmm. Like he's just smiling at me. Uh, but he looks like he's gonna wants to murder me and sleep with my wife, but he can't because of honor. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, and, and then he becomes a religious radical and grows a beard when everything goes wrong. Anyways, yeah. we are we love to watch. Where we love to watch. It's our first uh, recorded episode anyway of 2019, and we're starting a new month. And that new month is is an old month done again. January. It's been done before, but never like this. Because this one is 2019. Baby, you just ain't seen nothing yet. What year is it on the Jewish calendar? <laughs> oh, it's like 8,000? Yeah, so 2019 has been done at least once before, but for the Jewish people. Yep. <laughs> I mean, other people were there too. It's just how they do the dates. That must have been a real mix-up, I would imagine. I guess there was a negative 2019 for BC too. Oh, yeah. Because they counted yeah. up. <laughs> hey, I feel like living today is a negative 2019. Am I right? Yeah. Got a real goofball in the presidency. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, he's the... I think charitably he could be called a goofball. <laughs> <laughs> we got a bunch of numbskulls in Congress. <laughs> oh, those numbskulls. They held Just... on to the Senate. And a bunch of, a bunch of goofing arounds. In the Supreme Court. Yeah, there's definitely goof around. There's definitely goofballs. Mm-hmm. Um, goofy, Senator from uh, Arizona. <laughs> um, oh, Gosh! Uh, Bill son, Wall! His uh, son, Max, who's an, in Antifa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, trying to go to the Powerline concert. We're, we, yeah, where we left to watch, it's a new month. Uh, it is my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, dark fantasy two. We did this last January and we had so much fun that we wanted to do it again. It is the first week of of that where we're covering dark fantasy movies, primarily from the eighties. I think I don't know if we have one from a different decade. Let me do hold on. Let me do some calculations. By calculations, I mean try to remember them. Uh, <laughs> How's Professor Armstrong's brain calculator going? Uh, pretty bad, because one's from the 90s, so everything <laughs> shut right off. <laughs> you were wrong! Ah! Yeah. Uh, being wrong is like uh, the water to the witch uh, for white people. The witch? If white people find out that we're wrong, we melt. Oh! Like the witch to uh. water. Are you saying I should be writing SAT prep questions? Because I think <laughs> the implication is that I definitely should be. I um, feel like some of your terminology might be distracting from the question being asked, which is not actually a negative, because have you ever read a word problem before? Throwing in all sorts of stuff. Uh, look, I got a lot of problems with those words. <laughs> We're going to talk about them for two hours. It'll be like this. Sandy has seven apples. Bob has five apples. 
Terry's penis is five inches long. <laughs> How many inches long is Terry's penis? Four apples worth? You put four apples next to Terry's penis? Depends on the apple. I would imagine they'd be like... I think we could definitely say they're red delicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Where we love to watch a movie podcast, <laughs> we, do, uh, we do a theme or something every month. This one, as I mentioned, is dark, twisted fantasy, blah, blah, blah. The movie's Excalibur. John Borman, our second John Borman movie. Uh, and I'll tell you this. Once again, I was not bored, man. I was about to make that joke. I was going to say, yeah. I'm not, and we're not bored, man. No, super obvious. It's not original. And that's the kind of comedy you could expect. How do we get through the Deliverance episode without doing that? Anyway, so, but it's also, what, what were you going to say? You could say some things. No, you love doing, you love telling people. I love saying some things. I already said how the show works. Yeah, that's what I said previously is how the show works. We pick a theme. We remember, we compare and contrast. We rarely remember. Mm -hmm. It's just there to have a a tagline because we couldn't think of anything better. And just to start saying something you're saying, like a loveless marriage, and you just say it, say it over and over. And someday (laughs) we're just going to (laughs) die. And they're going to go, they really like that catchphrase. We're like, no, I was stuck in it. Um, Uh, 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 tell my wife I hated our catchphrase. <laughs> tell my podcast co-host we should have thought we should have tried harder. Um, so it's 2019. Before we get into X Caliber, I would say it's of caliber because it's a good movie. Yeah, it, it is a good movie. I would say people that don't like it, you get get X'd. Yeah, you should, yeah, an <laughs> Jimmy, X is gonna give it to Jimmy you. Kennedy experiment. You're X'd. You're X'd. You should be an X Caliber. We both made bad 90s references. Jamie Kennedy experience was WB, which may have been the 2000s. Oof. 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 He was still relevant in the, in the two aughts. Well, relevant enough to have a show on the WB. <laughs> oh, with the racist frog, that network. Wow. <laughs> Kirk Cameron is a teacher on Kirk. <laughs> Look it up. Uh, That's not real. It's 100% real. No. Yeah. There is 100%. They Kirked us? Oh, they kirked us. I'd rather be hit with a Kirk hammer. It was before it's everyone like sword. knew he was super religious. So when his show got canceled, he's like, all right, I'm going to yell at kids about bananas. Instead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and everyone was like, please do. Yeah. You see this banana? You These idiots. Kids, they do not get it. Hey, you idiots. This is a banana. Yeah, Kirk. 31 episodes. The show re- revolves around Kirk Hartman. It's, uh, it's Wikipedia lets you know that's that's played by Kirk Cameron. Mm-hmm. Um, in case you're worried that one of the other actors, like... Um, oh, Chelsea, no. Oh, shocking. His wife was on this one. Uh, Taylor Fry or Deborah Mooney was, was Kirk Hartman. An aspiring illustrator and recent college graduate living in Greenwich Village. After his aunt decides to move to Florida to get married... Kirk is left in charge of his younger brothers and sisters. So, he's not, I guess he's not really a teacher. He's just a guy trying to make it in this crazy life, watching his brothers and sisters while his mom... Wait, his aunt? So, I guess his aunt probably raised him? If his aunt moves, he's like, I guess I gotta raise my brothers and sisters. His mom and dad are like, why? We're still here. Nope! <laughs> my aunt moved to Florida. I'm the dad now. <laughs> Where were you when you learned that Kirk Cameron was indeed daddy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe it was uh, early January 2019. <laughs> See, that's the problem. As the New York Times or Washington Post or one of them said, 2018 was the year of the daddy. 
uh, and this show came out in 1995, so ahead of its time in specific relation to Kirk Cameron being daddy. They should have called the show Kirk is Daddy. Kirk Daddy. Kirk Daddy. <laughs> oh, man. That guy is fun. Uh, anyway. <laughs> he's so he's, a barrel of laughs. He's a barrel of laughs. Uh, speaking of barrel of laughs, it's 2019. We've done this before, probably. But just like, you know how people look at their lives and they go, I don't know, maybe stop eating Doritos at midnight because the calendar changed. Mm. Um they call them resolutions. Uh, and we have those on our show, too, Peter. Mm-hmm. We sometimes look at our show, look at our vast media empire uh, run by a guy that sits in his daughter's playroom with two storage boxes stacked on top of each other while he records. And you who put on pants mid-episode. And we go, we need to look at our show and, and think about how we can change it. Make it better in 2019. So, Peter, I think you and I have a few resolutions that we want to we want to share with our audience. We want to give them the deets so they can hold us accountable in some way to be TBD. Okay, so we're naming our favorite resolutions. Yeah, uh, first uh, the one by the guys that did it, the endless and spring mm-hmm. number one resolution. Uh, no, we're gonna say some resolutions. Okay, right, resolution number one. Ideally, I'd like to find something else to talk about. Uh, we get it. Movies, themes, directing, Borat. You know, I think it's probably enough already. Mm. There's other things in the world. There's art. There's streets. There's dinosaurs. There's what sex like. How do you handshake people? I, I can't mean, there's help just you other any of other, the handshaking. No, never done. Never touch the stuff. I just think movies enough. We've covered like 150 almost. Everyone gets it. We like movies. I think we should switch it up. Uh, it takes a long time to make a movie also. Um, yeah. It takes a long time to record these. Um, I mean, FX has the movies technically, but it, it took them a long time to get the movies. It takes us a lot of work to get them from the FX. Yeah, and we're doing a movie a week. Eventually, we're going to catch up with the movies. We got we to gotta pivot for the future. Or Johnny Law is going to catch up with us, stealing mm-hmm. all those movies from FX. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should change the title, though. So maybe we should really, really lean into the voyeurism. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just watch our neighbors and talk about that. Yeah, I mean. All right, 90 second recap on how my neighbors drove into their driveway. <laughs> Straight. Alternate tagline. <laughs> well, you call that a driveway? He didn't even shovel it. So you get ice. 90 second recap. I think my neighbors are arguing, but how much is too much? Yeah, and then we can talk about the themes. Mm-hmm. So one of them said, Bruce, I'm leaving you. <laughs> oh, exciting episode. Then we can compare and contrast to people that aren't getting divorced. <laughs> <laughs> If we remember, uh, Peter, what's your, Peter? What's your first resolution? Oh, um, I'm just gonna drink a little bit less caffeine, probably for the show. Just in general, I didn't know that these are resolutions for the show, Aaron. Yeah, they're definitely for the show. Oh, I think I just drink a little bit less caffeine. That's good. You're you're known as the hyper one. You got to calm down. So, what's your next one? Uh, I want to learn your name, buddy. Oh, well, do you? Do you want to do it now to, like, get a yeah, like, boost? Look, 12 months to go. Let's. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've been guessing, and I, that's why I call you Chief and Pal and 
Great Point. Muchacho. Sir, Muchacho. Cabron. They Cabron. tend to be ethnically focused, I have noticed. Yeah, because I uh, figured that out. Quick question. We record over audio uh, mm-hmm. always, remotely. Always. You're in Minnesota. I was in Chicago. Now I'm in San Diego. Uh-huh. You want me to start calling you Chicago? Do you know what race I am? Uh, Well, based on your name, Pate, that I see here. <laughs> Pate? Mm-hmm. Pate Morant. I assume uh, you've named your Skype name after a fancy Spanish dish. <laughs> yeah, that's that is that is that is uh, incorrect. Uh, actually, oh, oh. is uh, your name uh, Skipe? <laughs> I want to skip a over this question. <laughs> um, Audacity. All right. Well, I mean, that's the resolution here for 2019. Do you ever wake up in the morning after a podcasting session and you're like, "Oh my god, I don't even know who I recorded with." Yeah. Oh, uh, better not uh, text them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Would go, you? Hey, chief. <laughs> Stop calling me chief. Hey, buddy. Buddy's fine. I know. I actually thought that was your name, like Buddy the Elf. <laughs> oh, Buddy the Elf. Uh, because I'm mentally challenged and have been assaulted by Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> Look, we can debate that when we do our Elf episode, <laughs> Pete. I mean, Pate, what, what is your... Well, I thought we were doing, like, personal resolutions, well, so, yeah. you know... I w- Maybe I'm one of your gonna... resolutions, then, should be to pay more attention to what we do, but you can do your second personal one. My second, my, you know, my personal one was to um, spend more, shuffling papers? more time in person with, with my co-host to the podcast, Aaron Armstrong, who I know his name and his race, White, and... <laughs> this is I becoming thought, very weird. Yeah, I thought maybe, like, this year I would spend more personal time with my... With my good buddy Aaron Armstrong, who I know his name, sure. um, was uh, I, I co-host the podcast with. I know lots of things about, but yeah, I mean, if you don't even know my name, that's maybe I'll have to. I know you have one. Feels like yeah, know, half half the battle. Knowing is ha- half the battle. Half You're the right. Battle. Uh, well, if we we're doing personal ones, I would say that's a great resolution. Mine is to come up with a really good excuse to get out of a wedding in July. Uh, <laughs> But that's a personal one. So it's not like relevant to this podcast. Yeah, um, my number my number three is well, now. I feel stupid. Well, my number three I, is getting you married should. in July. <laughs> okay. Oh no, different different friend. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that makes sense. Um, what day were you planning on skipping a wedding? Well, uh, July seventh. Oh, that's the day I'm getting married. Um, yeah, that's why. Just, that's you know, why do you think I had to get out of that one so I go yeah. to yours? You silly goose. (laughs) (laughs) My number third. Uh, I like to finally master time travel. Like to go back in time. Mm -hmm. Like to stop Marcus's parents from conceiving him. (laughs) Um, I have some ideas. You know, I don't want to do anything like crazy or violent. I would just be like, hey. Are you going to seduce them together? Not going to seduce them. Not going to do anything like that. I'm just going to be like, here, I want you to listen to this. It's an episode of his Ernest podcast. (laughs) You tell me if you want to make this happen. <laughs> if, they, if they decide, they decide. Yeah. Look, I did my I did my best, but I, I would say with a, you know, 100% confidence that they will have sex a different night. Yeah. Yeah. But that different night stuff. could be different spermies. It will, well, definitely be different spermies because I want them to do mouth stuff. <laughs> They still get it out. Like I understand. Like you're the throat. You're about to, about to throws of passion. You know. Yeah. 
Even although I will say, once you hear that artist podcast, I can see it being very hard to continue <laughs> doing anything. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I imagine the stuff that's locked and loaded would be dead safely by the time they're able to uh, consummate that again. Yeah, maybe it pees. Maybe it comes out in the pee. Mm-hmm. Do you sit down when you pee? No. Hmm. Should I be? It seems. It seems nice though. I don't think so because I feel like. I feel like you have less range of well, maybe not motion's not the right word. It's about like the they, mo- it's about a motion of the ocean, I would say. When but then you're kinda of putting down. pressure on your prostate, so like doesn't that make the flow go less well? Mm. That's my favorite arcade uh fire song, Flow Go Less Well. <laughs> yeah. I know a place where the flows go less well. <laughs> less well <laughs> It just sounds nice. It sounds nice. like you could take a little sit, yeah. have some, have a relaxation in your day. Play some Mario Super Mario Run on your phone mm-hmm. while you ignore your children. Yeah. Sorry, just having a, while I'm having a long pee. Yeah. It's hard to get out because it doesn't flow too well when I'm sitting on <laughs> the prostate. Uh, anyway, do you, you did your number three. Um, do you have a fourth? Yeah, I did. I did. I would. Yeah, I'd like to get married this year and maybe July. Yeah, that was your third. You, you, yeah, you said you did your number three. I did my number three. You already did your number three. So you're on number four. So someone else has to do their number three. Oh, me. Okay. No, you did your three. Oh, wait. Did you do three? I just did three. I need oh, you to do got four. It. Oh, you want me to do four? It's like the Fibonacci sequence. Uh, <laughs> number four. Learn what people mean when they save the Fibonacci sequence. Well, that took a second because I was mid-drink and I did not want to spit it everywhere. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's, yeah, I would, Wikipedia. You it's like a weird while snail thing and then they put it over pictures of things that don't look like they should fit and I want to know what it means. <laughs> yeah, I would watch Lost maybe. Mm. There's a lot of mystery solved on that show. Uh, number four. Uh, I'm going to learn this year to control my rage. Mm. Uh, instead of getting mad, I'm going to get even with dad. <laughs> Not my dad. Specifically, Ted Danson's character in the movie, Getting, getting even, even With Dad. Getting Even With Dad. No. Um, don't get mad. Don't get, get mad. Getting Even With Dad. What, do you remember why he needed to get even with dad? Oh, yeah. Ted Danson seems like a good guy. Not in this one. He's, he's, so, this is the plot of getting even with dad. Um, did you see getting even with dad? No. He didn't just get mad. Okay. Uh, He got even with dad. He's not going to get mad. Ted Danson's like a criminal who steals all this money. And then his son's like. Which in real life, he's a criminal who steals hearts throughout the globe. Specifically hearts uh, from people and eats them. That's how he stays so young and fresh. Mm -hmm. Um, Good technique. So, yeah, he steals a bunch of money with two of his friends who are probably played by probably hilarious to look up actors, which I'm going to do right now. Um, is, and then, so the goot the goot is not in Steve Gutenberg. Oh no, that's that's not a getting in with dad situation. That's a I'm not getting mad. I'm gonna become a new dad. <laughs> oh yeah, getting in with dad. Just uh, no, every time I, I get mad, I just become a new dad. Yeah, <laughs> don't get mad. Become a dad. <laughs> <laughs> so getting in with dad is three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh jeez, Ebert gave it two stars. Um, it's, this is fine if movies about. Okay. Oh, Saul Rubinick is one of the friends? He's okay. Yeah. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, Saul Rubinick is Robert, quote, Bobby 
Drace. <laughs> um, Thank you for letting me know the approved nicknames list. So yeah, so he's mad because his dad, who's a con, won't spend time with him. So I think he steals all the money from the bank robbery. People knew how to make kids movies in the 90s. They're like, you know what? Macaulay Culkin, lovable boy who hurt those robbers. Let's have like a family comedy with him and his dad where his dad's a, a criminal who robs a bank, has guns and is very dangerous. And Macaulay Culkin, because he doesn't get to go to the movies, steals all that money from his dad. So then his dad and his friends are like, do we have to like hurt our son? We got to whack this guy. <laughs> we got to whack this guy with the long hair. <laughs> Judging by Home Alone 2 standards, he was probably like 18 at the time. They probably that probably started as a pitch too. So all right, hear me out. So Macaulay Culkin, his dad, career criminal, steals all the money from these criminals because he was raised in a bad environment. So stealing's just like the way of saying I love you. Then when they try to get their money back, Macaulay Culkin at his house has rigged up a bunch of traps. They're like, wait, this sounds really familiar. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't happen, but still, all the rest of it sounds really good. And then they made getting in with them. Uh, this movie sounds delightful. Well, people don't get mad. You, you don't get mad at dad. It's just r- rule number you one. You don't get mad. You get even. That's what I'm saying. So my rage this year, now you get mad. I'm going to get even with dad. Okay. Uh, um, do you think and- that we can maybe do that movie on the show? Uh, I think it's very hard to watch. Do you mean like physically sit and watch it? Or do you <laughs> mean like it's uh, hard to find a distributor for the film? I think think it definitely has not been released on formats that are watchable i don't think getting mm. even um oh never mind it's it's been released on amazon prime i want you to look at the poster on amazon prime and you can see what ted danson's doing in the poster and realize he seems pretty okay with that he got evened with i don't know how you describe what he's doing he's he's saying he's saying i'm a scamp so, uh, McCulloch is giving, the, is giving the white power sign. <laughs> He's giving the okay <laughs> sign uh, on the poster. Uh, and Ted Danson is like, one of these days. Um, uh, yeah. Why do they look like they're having so much fun in all the pictures? Ted Danson was showing, how should I pose for this poster? And then he was showing a picture of Kevin James doing anything from the future. <laughs> and then he's like, got it. <laughs> I definitely think describing posters our audience can't see is uh, good comedy. Yeah. Uh, anyways, Peter, what's your number five? Um, Sorry I interrupted you, but don't get mad. Just uh, get even with Dad. Get even with Dad. Uh, I would like to step up some of our production game <laughs> by putting ourselves deeply in debt by getting a recording studio and having a private jet fly us to it. But for out of convenience, it will be somewhere in like, I don't know, uh, Montana. Uh, I say if we're going to fly a private jet somewhere, let's go somewhere nice. Maui. Maui, wowie. You, so you're prepared to spend more time on the plane between recording sessions. Yeah. Uh, and I say when we get to Maui, we just record a segment like this and then go do some sightseeing and then next month come back and do the same. That's a great idea. Thank you. Are you prepared to go deeply in debt with me? Whew. I mean, I like both my kids, but one would probably fetch. Pretty nice price. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not if I buy her. Oh, yeah. No, I was only going to sell them to a loved one. Oh, okay. Anyways. I don't know where that bit's going, but it seems like something... Oh, the bit is that you don't love me. Uh, I love you. I just don't know what what you do with my kids, who I have 
broken in my own very specific way, and I don't know. They'll get broken in new all, ways. All the cadences. My number five is uh, so I've been talking about this for sixteen years since I was in college, and I've been talking about it for sixteen years. I think after all this time talking about it, I think it's finally time to stop talking about it, get my thing out, whip it, flip it, and reverse it. Uh. It's now no, 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 flip yet. See, that's the problem. Just like that, I just kept talking about it, Peter. Yeah, you just kept. It's time to actually take my thing out. It. Yeah, take my thing out, flip it, reverse it for real this time. We're not lying. Yeah. I'm gonna take my thing out, flip it, and reverse it before you do that. Which Aaron, I think, you if you that. flip it and reverse it, it means that you're just going back to the way it was. But I'm still gonna do walk through the process. <laughs> no, 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 because you're flipping it, which mm-hmm. is is like you know you flip it. And then you reverse it would be like yeah, you back know, to normal, reversing. but it's it's about the process you walk through. Yeah, uh, Aaron. Before you do that, mm-hmm. are you aware of testicular torsion? I mean, that's what he thinks kept me from just talking about it for sixteen years, Peter. I think you should get that small little lingam or whatever they get attached. Uh-huh. Uh, so your testicles can't. What about that testicle circus they have, where they just play with their testicles or whatever? Do funny faces with them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Vegas. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's where I'm yeah. gonna go for my training. I'll be like, guys, I've been dreaming about this moment for 16 years, but I'm here to learn how to take my thing out, whip it, flip it, reverse it. They're gonna teach you how to do it, but my question is this: You wanted to do it then. Do you still want to do it? Yeah, I'm like the uh, Rocky Balboa in Rocky Five, specifically. <laughs> What does he do in Rocky Five? I don't know. I have never seen it. (laughs) But it's the one where he probably is like, look, I've been talking about this for so long. Can't do it anymore. And someone's like, no, Rocky, punch someone younger than you. (laughs) He's like, nah, I'm going to punch God. I want to see a Rocky movie where he fights a very old man, like older than him. (laughs) (laughs) Like he comes back to the ring to beat another guy in a different movie who's 90. <laughs> like, who's also doing the same thing. <laughs> but, like, we don't he see his movie. He kills Gran Torino's wife. Yeah. That, I, yeah, ideally he kills, or he boxes Clint Eastwood's character from The Mule. <laughs> My ideal Rocky movie. Uh, this guy's gotta come back, too, Rocky. <laughs> Only one of you can come back. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a natural transition to Excalibur. I know you're 85 and have dementia. Maybe run for president. (laughs) Keep talking to that empty chair. Just keep yelling at kids about stuff and (laughs) saying stuff like they have wheels and they got walls. (laughs) Never stop when you try to take the whole country with you, Rocky. Rocky, death's the only way out. Death yeah. for everyone. <laughs> if you don't exist, they don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Makes the end of the of your world this. Yeah. Curtain yeah, that's... call, Rocky. I love Well, that was a weird direction for Rocky 7. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Rocky did it. I have become death destroyer of worlds. <laughs> he killed them all, the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> and Rocky starts showing up at theaters, start punch, punching people. 
he Thor punched the ground so hard, <laughs> everyone flew off into space. <laughs> Rocky, that was pretty cool. Wish you just did, but uh, I feel like Disney might have that copywritten. <laughs> Everyone's in space now, you space people. <laughs> but you know, there's gonna be one astronaut who sees another astronaut and says, It's time for my comeback. I'm gonna go be an astronaut again. He puts a piece of dried out space meat on his face. I think it would be like space ice cream. Space ice cream. They should make space ice cream. Ice cream for space. Cream for space. <laughs> and what they should do is just make regular ice cream, but make more of it. I imagine up there in space, those guys, they, they need lots of ice cream. They just did a big they just did a big thing. They went to space. One of my 10-month-old's uh, treats that you like, because they, they can eat finger food now, essentially, but it's like special stuff that dissolves in their mouth, mm-hmm. um, is like dehydrated yogurt. Which is essentially what space ice cream is. Oh, so, God. So my daughter basically eats space ice cream all the time. She's like a little astronaut. Does she eat them in bricks? No, they're like little things. Little hand things. I still make her go in the space suit just so she gets the full experience. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she doesn't eat much because she's crying out of fear. Why are you putting me in this weird isolation chamber? <laughs> You don't do this with the other finger food, but I try to make the experience real for her because I think authenticity is the most important thing you can do as a parent. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, do you want to be comfortable? Or you want to be strong? No, this is basically you're an astronaut. A little girl's gonna be an astronaut. My parents, I asked them when you're I was a fight kid, Rocky. will you buy me an astronaut suit? They said no. So you're eating space ice cream every meal in this suit. Face <laughs> ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I know you're just learning to chew, and choking's a real concern right now, but please don't do it because I'm not going to be able to get in there in time. <laughs> <laughs> just imagine you doing the, the like, uh, back padding thing uh, to an astronaut, but, like, a very small astronaut. Oh, no, I put her in the whole suit, the big one. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not even seeing her. You're just well. It's an investment, Peter. Like I don't need to buy a small one. They grow out of them so quick. Uh, like kids these days, <laughs> they're growing do. up too fast. Yeah. yeah, like all that six months clothes and nine month clothes. But might as well just throw in the garbage. They use it once. <laughs> you know, we had a nine month astronaut suit. What are you made of? Made of astronauts? No, suits? I do the whole thing. I pump oxygen in there and everything. <laughs> It's very dangerous. No, no one's She's incredibly smoke. flammable. No one smoke. My daughter's eating ice cream. <laughs> Wait, so she's just in there for her ice cream portion? She's out of there for other stuff? Yeah, because you can't eat the other stuff in space. Got it. I remember the first time I had astronaut ice cream, I was like, it just tastes like shit. I imagine in a spacesuit, though... Would have really made the experience sing. Yeah, it does. Well, and also I really, I really amp it up because I play. Uh, yeah, I just, uh, I just play Richard Strauss's symphonic bow. <laughs> Everyone loves it. So she's very confused. Anyway, do you want to talk about the 1981 film uh, Excalibur? Excalibur, yeah. Huzzah! Had golden hair Like yours, lady like yours Stream 
Peter, I am. Alternate taglines. Hey, you know that Disney movie you saw when you were a kid? Well, there was more fucking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of, <laughs> that's a lot of it. It's like, hey, because t- the Disney Sword in the Stone is really just like, hey, it's just, just him when he's with Gawain and shit. And then at the end, he finds the sword and he's king. What if like that, we do that in the first 10 minutes and then the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all just like, uh, hey, you've heard this story before. What if it was sad? Hey, uh, like pleasant fucking, like some hot, cool, like Lancelot. No, it's all sad fucking or like really disturbing fucking or gross fucking or non-consensual, non-consensual fucking. All the worst kinds of fucking. I hope it's very clean and no one's muddy. Oh, no, people are very muddy. Yeah, they're they're dirt boys in this movie. I would say um, it does have it does have a pre Game of Thrones sort of. It's sort of an er Game of Thrones because it's very much like one of the first movies I ever saw that was dark fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that in the episode proper because it there is something about its appeal, especially when I first saw it in college too, where it's like it's doing the grim dark grittiness but still has like this fantastical magic world which is something i i don't know if i've had seen before when i like it always felt like it was one or the other like you either had happy magical bright colors crazy shit uh or you had like everything is dark and muddy like you either had fucking flesh and bone or return to oz yeah 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 yeah. and when i was a kid i didn't really like a lot of fantasy tropes, except for the ones that were kind of like grim and dark and weird. Like I liked Princess Bride because it was like weird and there was that torture scene and like it felt like it had genuine stakes. But when yeah. someone was like, do you want to see a magical wizard bounce around? You're like, no, no, no. I yeah. never wanted to see Sword in the Stone. I never wanted to see like any of that shit. Yeah. So this really, I remember when I first saw it, which uh, just kind of felt like. Oh, yeah, the Excalibur movie. Um, it had a really cool poster, too. Um, I wasn't alive when this movie came out, but I remember seeing the the poster on, like, various merchandise at, like, dollar stores and rummage sales and stuff. And you and worked like, in a video store. I did, but that video was, uh, that video case looked shitty. Mm-hmm. Um, it did not have the same, like, epic, like, sparkly poster with all these, like, different characters, like the... The original theatrical poster looks like the Empire, almost looks like the Empire Strikes Back original theatrical poster and just like this wonderful art and all these different like mini scenes taking place. But then like in home video it was just, uh, I think it was just like, here's a guy with a sword in front of a castle. But I still oh, yeah. remembered the imagery from all that stuff and like having, having it be something that like I always wanted to seek out and did so when I was in... Uh, I think high school. So you were like not at the, I think you were at the right age for what this movie was shooting for, which was like, let's take the Arthurian myth and make it uh, feel more relevant to today's uh, adult audiences. Like they already have their kids versions of these stories. Like let's tell the story for a modern audience that is softer than I think the original myth. The original myth was like a it was a it was a myth. It was a legend. Like you told it to children. You told it. Yeah, to but adults. like you told it to like, everybody. Like it was, I'm actually going to kind of disagree with you because in some of the stuff I looked up, like 
I mean, there's there's where the myth starts. Like it goes a bunch of places, and then someone writes a book in like the 1100s or like a epic poem or whatever the fuck they wrote some troubadour saying about it, and adds to it. But like, it did always have the kind of depressing ending. It oh had no, that's the, what I'm saying is that like yeah. the myth used to the myth the myth was itself written for an audience that was like of all ages Into grim and fairy tales and yeah and, yeah and could handle a level of violence or a level of betrayal or whatever that you wouldn't put in a disney movie and you had to sort of soften it for 20th century audiences when you gave versions of it or even uh, 19th century audiences yeah the arthurian myth is built into all of english culture and then as a result is built into american culture but just less so less yeah. obviously so well, it is, you know, this this movie is a stark reminder of, like, uh, so, I, like, the three classic characters, and I know they have different levels of classic and how long they've been around, that I felt like they marketed to kids. Like, they marketed Batman and superheroes and, you know, whatever cartoon shows. But, like, when I was a kid, I distinctly remember, like, three other quote-unquote cool as shit characters that, like, you bought merchandise for and books and you got into it, which was the King Arthur stuff, uh, Peter Pan, and Robin Hood. Those are, like, the three uh, things that they still, like, had enough appeal to children. Uh, they were, like, were, like, the first superheroes or first whatever that they, uh, I you know, there was a ton of stuff that you could get, card games and other shit like that. And this is kind of a stark reminder of, like, how fucking dark that... It is kind of crazy that someone went, hmm, maybe make this for children? <laughs> like, Robin Hood and Peter Pan... Peter Pan was always for children, and that's a little uh, earlier. But Robin Hood <laughs> makes a certain sense. But, like, this is like, all right, so Morgana is his uh, half-brother because a wizard. Like, that was already baked in there, and, like, the... Quests that would never be fulfilled for the Holy Grail and like the death and like a lot of the the stuff and there some someone at some point in a marketing room was like they got swords though so children yeah the sexual intrigue stuff is like baked into it and it's so funny that like you see sword in the stone and the various versions of it and they really don't dig in on how dark the Uther Pendragon stuff is yeah like. The movie begins with an absolute yeah, tragedy. Perfect. Oh, and, yeah. and that's why I'd like to start yeah. there because yeah. like our version of the Arthur story that gets passed to us as children is just like there's this really fucking cool dude, Arthur. He's got a rad sword. He's got a bunch of friends and a round table. So it's like they everybody can talk to each other. Yeah. And like it ends. I think somebody finds a cup or something. But like don't worry about why they need to find oh, it. Oh, yeah. And remember, they also got a wizard friend. Yeah. And then he's got a wizard friend that hangs out. And at the end, everything works out. But he's like an old man. And then he's like, hmm. Uh, England, you should be a country. And that's the story of Arthur. Uh, that's not really like the actual story. It's like yeah. much darker and teeming with betrayal and incest. And yeah. So John Borman made a dark version of Camelot. Which is actually like the almost, I would actually before just the dark, I, I think he, from a myth telling perspective, I would also say this is the definitive version 
of the the King Arthur stuff. If you look at movies made before this, besides Sword in the Stone, there's not much. There wasn't like the Adventures of Robin Hood or like Three Musketeers, like these classic movies in the 30s, 40s, and 50s on King Arthur. Like it didn't exist. And it kind of got a little bit of an influx with the Sword in the Stone. And then like this is really the first major like adult fair King Arthur movie they made. More yeah. kid fair, really. Yeah, and this is more remembered as a John Borman movie stateside than it is remembered as like the definitive King Arthur movie. And they keep making these fucking King Arthur movies that no one wants to see. Like Clive Owen and Antoine Fuqua made one. Yep. Is that you say his name, Fuqua? I think so, but I'm uh, a, as historically a terrible guy. person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> they made the King Arthur one with Kira Knightley and and uh, and uh, Clive Owen, and it is one of the most inert, terrible move, action movies I've ever seen. Like, it's didn't they, didn't they take out the magic? Yeah, they made it more. Gr- they made it more ground level. It's a total like compromised beast. It always reminded me of the Robin Hood that Ridley Scott did in both like. Oh, you took out everything I liked about it. No, yes. Thank you. Yes. It, at least Ridley Scott was trying to make it like violent and grim, but like the King Arthur one that Antoine Fuqua made, the one that Antoine Fuqua made sapped out of the heroism while making it kind of sterile. Like it's the sort of movie that would never be made post Game of Thrones for better or for worse. Whatever. And then I didn't see the Guy Ritchie one, but I heard like wildly different things of worst movie of all time or crazy enough to be entertaining. Yeah. And uh, either way, like those are never going to be the definitive versions of the story. And what's weirdly enough is like the more definitive versions in America are going to be the kids versions. So anyways, uh, the story. Well, and we do have definitive versions of the other two I mentioned, right? Like the Errol Flynn Adventures of Robin Hood is the definitive Robin Hood movie. And it's old enough that Errol Flynn's terrible legacy is not going to ruin it. No. And like, I think the second best one you'd have there is the Kevin Costner stuff, although we talked or the Kevin Costner one just for how fondly it's remembered. But like the true hitting all the beats of the Robin Hood mythos and being a well done movie, it's it's the Errol Flynn one. And then for Peter Pan, we have the Disney one like they can like and actually the one from 2003 is actually pretty good, too. But those are the definitive versions like you can keep making Peter Pan and Robin Hood movies, and they will, uh, even just in the last couple of years have shown. But, like, those are pretty good definitive versions. And it's just weird because those are so etched into our – like, everyone knows Disney Peter Pan. Everyone knows The Adventures of Robin Hood. It is weird when you, like, look at all the King Arthur movies and you go, oh, it, yeah, it's this fucked up really dark one. This really is the definitive take of the story that's been made. And I I think you could actually make the argument that this is the one that could be unseated by something else if anyone – not because I think that necessarily this needs a better version. I really like this movie. I know we're going to talk about it a lot, but more just that I think this is somewhat a footnote in the cultural conversation. If there is a cultural conversation about King Arthur in the way the other two aren't. Yes. Like I read Macbeth in high school in one class and we watched the Roman Polanski Macbeth movie, which is awesome, by the way. It's it's I think it's the only it. good Macbeth movie. Um, I thought the one that from a couple years ago people really liked. I did not like it at all. It's oh. so fucking inert. But it, it's got great like 
the, the it's well cast and it's gorgeous looking, but it's so dramatically inert. Um, they don't bring the text alive at all. Um, the best version is the Roman Plansky one, for better or for worse. And worse. and we and then we watched and then we watched uh, you know other adaptations of other works we were doing in, in that mm-hmm. class, but. We did King Arthur and the teacher was like, I don't really know what King Arthur movie to show you. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because I don't know if she had seen this movie and didn't like it or if she just didn't know this movie existed. Or she had seen it and been like, well, I can't show this to high school. Maybe, but the Roman Polanski Macbeth is vicious, too. So I don't know. Uh, Anyways, so the plot of King Arthur, as as said in in this uh, movie... Uh, Excalibur is Uther Pendragon. Great way to cover for kind of forgetting the name of the movie for a second. I think you did well. Thanks. I needed a vamp. Um, The first act of the movie, it's not even a first act. It's like a prologue, is about Uther Pendragon, who is Arthur's father. And it's sort of uh, Arthur's origins. And it shows you a bit of Merlin's origins. And what it essentially is, is Uther Pendragon has a war going on to try and unite England. And it's a brutal, vicious war. He's a uh, a dark, aggressive person who's only slightly reined in by Merlin. And Merlin has magic powers and he occasionally helps out in in his campaign. And uh, they finally reach this wonderful point of victory uh, where he makes a deal with, you know, another lord, another king that doesn't want to be dominated by him. They finally reach this point of victory. Uh, Merlin convinces him and, you know, his, his associates convince him, like, you know, just take this deal. Like, just give him a little bit of land, whatever. And so they meet. Uther uh, agrees to, you know, let him into the country. Uther, Uther sees this dude's wife and he's like, I will ruin, I will throw it all away for her. Like, she's so beautiful. She's doing this, like, erotic dance. I guess it's erotic. I don't know. Maybe in, like, the yeah. 1500s, it's, it's a version of erotic. Um, what a lot of waving he, arms. <laughs> the dude has uh, no chill. Yeah, played by Gabriel Byrne. He has less chill than normal. Less chill Like, I would than say his Lucifer in End of Days has more chill. Oh, for sure. For sure. And Uther is clearly supposed to be tagged as a bad person. You can tell John Borman thinks he's trash. Uther says, like, Merlin, like, just make me win this war against this guy. The war is back on. And I will give you the firstborn child that's born of this. And uh, Uther, I feel like I'm telling drunk history now. I feel like, like you're, I'm not that you're going into every scene and way too it's much. So hard 90 to, second recap. Just say it's so hard to explain like it's why King, he King wants Arthur to. I, anyway, yeah, we'll talk about that in the episode. It's a hugely complicated story. But basically, Uther uses Merlin to hide his identity and uh, do a Revenge of the Nerd style assault on yeah. this Lord's wife. And he wins the war because of this. Well, and he has a daughter, Morgana, but she sees the rape occur and is like, that's not my dad. Yeah. And then, yeah, the dead dad shows up. Then flash forward. So jumping forward, uh, Arthur has been taken by Merlin and has been given to my baby now. Different night. (laughs) Yeah. Um, See, this is complicated shit. Yeah, it's fine. He says, my baby now. He's like, yeah, nope. Remember I said you'd owe me something. I want the baby. Yeah. Uther lives out his reign, dies, whatever. Arthur is given to another knight who's like the squire of that knight's son. Gawain. 
Yeah, and he pulls the sword from the stone, as is told in the story. Some people bow to him. Some people say, like, fuck this. This is just a... This yeah. is not just a kid, but a a squire. I'm not, I won't kneel before a squire. Not a, not a knight, yeah. Arthur takes up the hero's quest and says, like, no, fuck that. I'm king of England. Well, and pretty quickly he gets the he gets the other people to be, like, convinced because he shows mercy. And then, like, they're like, oh, you won't bow before a knight? Well, then knight me. It's a great moment that shows, like, who the best that Arthur can be. And then the movie slowly drags Arthur down to the dirt because Arthur wins the country uh, shortly after that. And he becomes the king. He sets up the round table, yada, yada. He seems to be a pretty good king. Like, people seem to be happy. He has a beautiful castle. Um, all of that. But Lancelot, loyalty to the king, but his, uh, Arthur's wife, Guinevere, wants to fuck Lancelot. Lancelot so wants the to opposite fuck Guinevere. Of they're both doing this thing where they're like, we're, we're, we have honor to the king, so we cannot, we cannot consummate this thing. And then... There's challenges to her honor that he needs to resolve. Uh, Liam Neeson <laughs> thinks she's uh, yeah she's a bit of a hussy. Um, Who's Liam Neeson again? What's his name, sir? Uh, I think is that that's not Galahad. It's Gal. No, no, it's uh no, it's no, it's a Gawain the Green Knight. That's Gawain. I think too many G names. There's a lot of knights at this round table. There's they they really go into like this the knights that don't even get mentioned in most uh, K. That's his brother's name, Sir Kay. And the way that Borman handles all these knights is, I think it's the best way to handle this in a two and a half hour movie or whatever. It's that most of the these knights that have deep backgrounds in the original story just become kind of side characters. Well, and each kind of serves a purpose, which I like. Like, Sir Percival yeah. or whatever at the end, he's like the young knight who's, he's doing the grail quest. Lancelot's fucking his wife um, and being fucked back by her. Let's not... Yeah. So it's a two-way two way street. Takes two to tango. Yeah, it takes two back. to honk it. Sir Galahad's like, I think you're you I think Lancelot and your wife wanna fuck. And that's like it. So it is nice that it keeps it that way. But meanwhile, uh Morgana, um she had sex with Arthur, her half brother, and conceived a son, Morgan Le Fay. Yeah, and it's a great great character like yeah uh, we didn't we didn't we'll talk about all the actors that are cast in this movie because yes. it's it's a fantastic cast but it's a great little character he's this evil little omen-esque son of a bitch he's this and it, tur- and it turns into a horror movie for it's, like 20 minutes and it is so fucking creepy and good where they've kind of laid waste to this country killed all these knights and then like have like david lynchian fuck with all the knights before they murder them that come to get him. I love it. This is the part. This is the point where the movie becomes like my thing. Yeah. And uh, Arthur is not, has not been defeated or whatever by by Morgana or her son yet. And he, <clears throat> as an old man, conscripts the knights to go find the Holy Grail. And the, what's well, also about- well done. You're right. This is dense because the land is dying and no one can figure out why. So they're trying to find the Holy Grail. You find out at the end that Merlin tied, like, his big thing was to find a great king that would rule for a long time, and then he tied England to Arthur. So, as Arthur, like, loses his wife and loses friends and, like, realize that, like, his entire kingdom that he's built is kind of crumbling on all these different fronts, England starts dying itself. Which is so, actually, but they don't realize that. Which is actually kind of like a great little metaphor for... 
um, leadership at a certain level that you need you need powerful leaders to drive the the um, the, the the power of a kingdom, right? Like yeah. you need powerful leaders to to make sure that a kingdom thrives, and you can miniaturize that to say like you know your your group, your family, whatever needs a powerful leadership to to thrive. Yada yada. This I mean this takes it more detail. Like if Arthur's constipated one day, the crops don't bloom because <laughs> they're literally one for right. one. The corn just turns into logs of shit. Why? Yeah. Why can't the corn come out? Because the corn can't come out of the king. <laughs> Arthur sends off his quest to find the the Grail Percival, who starts this as sort of he's a fanboy. Yeah, he's sort of like a, a like a little wretch fanboy of of uh, the Knights of the Round Table, and then he gets to go pro. It's like Jonah Ray. Like Jonah Ray got to like join up with all. He was just this like uh, standout comedian who made like yeah. dirty jokes and stuff, and then he got to join up with all the nerds and then become his own nerd little knight and become the best one. Yeah, I mean, so far, yeah, um, well, he, just like Percival, yeah. He was the one that had that found the Grail. Yeah, and the Grail was uh, Mystery Science Theater three thousand. And getting away from Chris Hardwick. Yes, <laughs> running, sprinting away from Chris Hardwick. So yeah, Morgana. They take the Grail, and Morgana's like, or Morgan Lefay's like, "Fuck you up." And they're like, "Try it." And oh yeah, Merlin's been trapped by Morgana. That's why he's not helping. And they finally find him and release him. And then there's a big battle, and everyone dies. <laughs> It's a it's an That's awesome it. big like end battle where Merlin helps by bringing in the fog. Morgana gets Let's killed. Just go by to her. move. How yeah. about some fuck? Morgana gets killed by her evil son because he sees her grow old and ugly, and he's like, "Gross." He's, he's like, "What can I do with you now?" I mean, the good guys win. Arthur dies. Lancelot dies. Like, yeah, like pretty much everybody but Percival dies. Yeah, and Merlin goes away forever. But it's it's still considered a good ending because. Arthur gets to this movie is nothing but incident, right? Um, it's still considered a good a good ending because Arthur redeems himself by killing his his sins of the past. Yeah, uh, Excalibur is returned to the Lady of the Lake, but yeah. the the England will survive. This famine is over. The evil tyrant is dead. This like antichrist tyrant is dead, and maybe you know someone noble can lead the country maybe. when the country is ready for it. They just learned something today. Yeah, and it was a it was not a ninety second recap, but like, come the fuck on, like, what, what? No, it was. There's so much plot, and it's a two and a half hour movie. I don't want to do this for every movie, but I think it's important for this movie because the story of Arthur is something that I think for Americans missed a lot of people's like basic literacy test. I feel like not, I feel like a lot of us didn't read Camelot as kids, uh, the way English kids might be familiar with it. So like the story itself, like you might think, you know it because you, yeah, we had more American heroes like Robin Hood and Peter Pan. (laughs) (laughs) I think those, but I think that those, that there's a point there because Robin Hood and Peter Pan were more easily packageable and Mary Poppins, like all these British legends. I know Mary Poppins is much newer, but, they were much more easily packageable for American audiences. I'm pretty than... sure Mary Poppins was in the Bible. <laughs> oh, she was. She was yeah. popping up here and Ezekiel there. Ezekiel is uh, Yiddish for Mary Poppins. Oh, I didn't know that. It's all in there in Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> get into the foundational texts. <laughs> uh, Aaron, some point you're going to see Mary Poppins Returns. And we're gonna Sunday. Have, we're gonna By the time this episode comes out, I will have seen it. Mamma mia. Uh... No, Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. 
<laughs> no, once again. Marathon oh, it's just returns. Good. Got it. Yeah. Um, it's a very lush, wonderful movie that I think rewards repeat viewings because of its density. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's one of the things I really like about, and I don't want to sound like in my day, but one of the nice things about watching some of these sword and sorcery or fantastical epics from the like pre 90s is that like if you wanted a like castle you had to go to ireland and find fucking castles and then you shoot everything on it so the movie's gorgeous because it's all shot in ireland and all the castles and streams and mountains and everything like that like they're just all shooting on it oh yeah and you, yeah, and you shoot at the right time of year where you yeah. can capture like the beauty of England, and you don't come back in like February when it looks like a dead, desolate land. If you're also like you don't shoot the Midwest in unless you're making a depressing drama, you don't shoot it in the middle of winter because it'll look like nothing. Same thing with England. You don't shoot England in the middle of winter because it'll look like fucking nothing. You shoot it in like the summertime when you can get or spring or fall where you can get like some diversity and color. And this yeah. movie really wonders plays off of seasonality and color change and you can feel the the changes in power and the changes in tone by the way Borman shoots the fucking thing. Which makes sense thematically because as we find out like since it is all tied to King Arthur it makes sense that it would be lush and beautiful and then get like muddier and grimier up until like the horror fucking sleepy hollow type landscapes of the end. Yeah, and I love that Arthur – so as I, I noted, they kind of skip over Arthur's entire war to win England. They they do it really quick. They basically say like there's one battle where he's uniting his main troop and he wins over uh, one of his knights by basically kneeling before him and saying like, then knight me. I'll lead the country, just knight me. And after that, it's such a rousing sort of like celebration that you you can emotionally carry your heart through the fact that they're skipping to, oh, now he's the king of fucking England. Like the other eight brutal battles or a hundred brutal battles, whatever it is, your heart can carry over it. And the movie is expertly edited and scripted for that reason. Like you never say like, oh, that was too fast. Yeah, you say like you say like, oh, I, I carried through on on this, and it's it came from someone who genuinely understands and cares about the text. Well, and that's because the movie isn't about King Arthur becoming king. They got a nice 30, 40 minute prologue, so it's not like oh, it still has the both the uh, backstory of like his relationship with Morgana, which is important for later on, and it also has the. Uh, you know, the pulling, uh, you know, pulling the sword from the stone, which is obviously people want to see. But then also shows like how he could it doesn't a, a cliff note version of it. But it does show, as I mentioned in this great scene, how he could unite the country, which is he went after people, but he trusted like the goodness of humanity that they wouldn't kill him when he was down, spared people himself. And like, you know, you get a sense that even though this is just a guy who pulled a stone or uh, um, pulled a stone stone out of a sword and used that to throw at his enemies. Um, he pulls a you know sword out of a stone. He is the type of guy that is like you would want to you would want to be the king, which is what 
Merlin was was looking for as a way to unite all the tribes. So Merlin is awesome. Yeah, Merlin Merlin is awesome. I feel like they clearly wanted Alec Guinness and did not get him because <laughs> yeah. they're like, it's okay. We found this guy who looks exactly like him but is not as good of an actor. He's really good at bouncing back between that sort of um, wise old man and out of it crazy person. Like he's really good at, at modulating those two. He's either a bad actor. I've not, I looked him up. I have not seen him in anything else. you never seen um, Spawn? Is he in Spawn? He's in fucking Spawn. Uh, the I don't remember him from Spawn. That's not he's one. barely in it. But um, he plays a hobo too. So I bet he has like eight lines, and he's like, "You're Spawn," and then he's like, "I am Spawn," and then the movie keeps being Spawn. I'm Martin Sheen. Uh, <laughs> the only guy. thing I remember about Spawn is that uh, Martin Sheen has an awesome villain device, and that it's if his heart stops, nuclear Armageddon happens. Oh, oh, yeah, I remember that. So my Spawn story that you guys want to hear involving Martin Sheen is I really wanted to see fucking Spawn mm-hmm. when it came out, which I would have been 13 or 14, because even though I had read, like, my friends really liked the comics, even though I wasn't allowed to have them, and I was like, cool, fucking Spawn movie. This is going to be awesome. And my parents wouldn't let me see it, but I found out Martin Sheen was in it, and I tried to use that. Because Martin Sheen was actually someone who my mom had just interviewed for an article. Um, as a matter of fact, I answered the phone in our house when he called. And because of all this charity work he was doing at our family friend's charity in Guatemala. So I tried to use the fact that Martin Sheen was in it, who was a person they really liked, to let me see it. And it did not work. <laughs> it didn't take? Didn't take. They were like, well, you know, everyone does some things sometimes for their job. That doesn't mean like... You know, no one's, it was like a, it was a Poe Buddies Nerfect. It was not like a, it was not like a, well, Martin Sheen's in it. I just wasn't fucking, I was, I was tapped out of Spawn. Didn't get to see it till like a year or two later when I had that friend whose parents worked all day in the summer and I would just go over there and watch all the movies we weren't allowed to watch at my house. I watched it when I was younger than that and I really dug it and I didn't realize till years later that it was like bad, bad. It's so uh, bad. But I, I really liked it when I was, whatever, 10, 9. I saw it at the perfect age. Yeah, I definitely liked it when I saw it because it was like, oh, this is, this is, I mean, I was 15. Spawn was huge. I wasn't like critically watching the movie. I was like, Spawn doing Spawn stuff. <laughs> yeah, you were like Spawn with the Spawn, a bang, a bang, biggie, biggie. I was probably doing exactly that. All I need is Spawn and and hardcore non-establishment Kid Rock, who's never going to say visit a president in the Oval Office. He's going to be uh, a cowboy, baby. <laughs> he tried to warn us. Oh, he, he means like a real cowboy, like one of those racist ones. Anyway, so Merlin's good. You know who's you know who's really funny who's in this movie, which is Patrick Stewart. And here's why it's funny. We've done a few of these movies now where Patrick Stewart pops up. Life Force. Oh, Dune. So we, we've seen Patrick Stewart now in a couple of movies that we've done on this show, Life Force and Dune. But he never really gets to be his full piece due, you know? Well, here, but here's what's funny is that, like, all of these movies that he's in, he always plays the most unhinged, craziest character. <laughs> like, he's like he's the, he's the biggest guy in this. He's, like, yelling and he's freaking out. And in Life Force, he's a crazy doctor who gets possessed. And in Dune... <laughs> 
you know, he's yelling and screaming and he's just loud and big. And then, like, it's so funny that someone was like, all right, I see all his performances. I think he would make a really good, calm and reserved person that is known for being stoic and unemotional. <laughs> because, like, all his yeah, 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 performances yeah. are, like, yelling and freaking out. And then, like, he he became known as, like, this stoic, unemotional, like, dad figure who keeps it together. Follows process no matter what. But isn't that the path of all British actors though? Because like yeah. they they all go through the they all go through their stage with the crazies of England, and then one day they have to get old and then become like Michael Gambon and Richard Harris and all these like old British dudes. <laughs> At one point, we're like the crazy guys who were throwing out like these screaming performances, and then one day you get to be British long enough that you get to play like Grandpa Magic. I agree with that, but I think your timelines are a little messed up because the distance between Life Force and John Luke Picard, Captain of the Enterprise, is one year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I three years for Dune and six years for Excalibur. I think I think about there being like another 10 years between the 80s and 90s that didn't exist. No, I know what you're talking about, though. It does seem like things happened further apart. (laughs) That's what it's true. Like any time that you see one of those things on Twitter, that's like, can you believe that the distance between like the Macarena and now is the same distance between Led Zeppelin's debate album and the Macarena. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No fucking way. And then you crunch the numbers and that meme was posted a year ago and now the difference is even greater. Yeah. Like anytime you see one of those, it is insane. And part of that's just when we were born and, you know, like because we're living the history, it's not like. It doesn't seem like there's so much. How you contextualize the past is based on a hunch. Like you're yeah. like you're placing these into these weird boxes that you can't touch and you're just like it's somewhere in that box over there and then when you realize the boxes are way closer together than you actually thought, it's crazy. And that actually reminds me of something about Excalibur that I was thinking about a lot after watching it. It's a little bit of a tangent, but we talk about on this show about like us being like these movie fans as children. And I think part of that was, especially in an age of not the internet, there was a sense of like, I have no idea what movies even exist for a long time. Like, till I was like, maybe, you know, 10, 12, 13. Like, it just was like, there could be any movie. You don't know what exists. You walk into a video store, you find stuff and you're like, what the fuck is this? This looks amazing. I didn't know that existed. And that was like a very common thing for like most of your childhood. There's movies you know exist and there's stuff like Excalibur where I remember seeing a fucking novelization and the poster and like all these things. I'm like, where is this movie? What is this movie? Because besides not having the internet, you just don't have that concept of it. And so this movie, we talked about it last year at this time at the Black Cauldron, are movies that, like, I knew existed. Like, I almost see, like, artifacts from them. Like, I can extrapolate that this movie that looks cool and is about things I like exists. But how do I find it? What's it about? What other movies are out there? And that really, I think, that sense of mystery and wonder that that existed in those ages is why I became this, like, big movie fan. Because I just, like, I didn't know about Star Wars till I was, like, 11. And it was like, what the fuck is this? Because my it's parents there. didn't watch it. Yeah. It's like, there's more of these? Like, you just you just have this, what else could I find? Where now, like, even movies that I haven't seen, like, I know all the movies that exist. 
Like basically, like there's there's rarely a movie that has uh, that is held in any regard from our past that I'm not like actively aware of and is probably not on some watch list. And that really is one of the fun parts about being like an early cinephile or just like a kid in elementary school who loves movies is there was this sense of like, what is out there? Yeah. Oh, no, it was totally for me. And it, and some of it was gatekeeperism that I thought that if I was the movie guy and I could like find all these weird discoveries, I could introduce them to people. But but the rest of it, I think, is just a genuine sense of excitement that like you realize the past is open to you. And if you do have that sort of uh, willingness, that curiosity or whatever you call it, that you can watch older movies, like you have an entire wealth of, of options ahead of you. And it really is, again, not to internet age you and stuff, but like when you were 10, if you had seen a poster for Excalibur, you could, what, you would have been 10 in 2000? Uh, in 2000, yeah, I would have been 9, 10. Yeah, so like you could probably go and look it up. Right. And find some reference to someone on the Internet. Like when I was 10, if you saw someone's like, well, you just have to be able to look out for clues like that's yeah. it. Some part of me is a little bitter that like kids these days, I guess now with with a uh, film struck being down, it's a little bit more limited. But when I was in high school, if I wanted to watch like a um, Kurosawa movie, I had to buy a Criterion, save up money, buy a... That's why I have a Criterion box set of Kurosawa movies, and that's why I have such high regard for them, because, like, those were the movies I could afford that summer. Like, <laughs> like I bought some cheapos in the meantime, but, like, the ones I could... The ones that I saved up for was a Kurosawa box set that cost $80, which seemed like an enormous amount of money when I was 12 or whatever. And, like, that was a thing. And now it's just, like, at least, you know, when Filmstruck was out, you could just be like, uh, I'll drop $10 a month and then watch all the Kurosawa movies and then I'll have seen them all. Like, that's crazy. And I'm jealous. I'm not I'm not embittered by it, but I'm jealous that, like, kids have the resources that we didn't have. Like, we had to go hunting. Like, yeah. You could, we could, like, okay, so I, I had more resources than you. Yeah. I could learn about the movies and I guess DVDs were probably cheaper when I was at that age. Well, and you could order stuff from, like, I know it, the, this, the resale market wasn't what it is now, but you can still order like weird imports and something. I remember being um, a junior in high school. I was dating this girl and her favorite movie was Cinderella, but they didn't own it because it had been in the vault for like seven years and they hadn't bought it. So they just didn't own it and they didn't have a way to own it. And I remember for a Valentine's day present one year, I like found this inner, like I, I was like, maybe I'll look on the internet and, like, this was, like, 1998, so it was, like, or 99 or something. So, I found, like, some weird video store in Canada that had a used copy and, like, paid 60 bucks for it. And, like, and it was, like, this is amazing. How did you get this? And now, yeah, they still do the fucking vault thing, but it is, like, all right, well, I'll just have to pay $40 for it on Amazon. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's not 20 it's 40 Yeah, yeah I guess fine. And I also want to relate this all back to... Um, the movie is very much about the repeating sins of the past and how they come back to get you. Mm -hmm. And it's very much about how intergenerational sins don't just go away. Uther Pendragon's sin of raping a woman out of lust and then as a result having to give her new baby away. And she, she knew by the end of that conversation that 
like he was the father, right? Like she suspected and then by the end of the conversation she knew he would have to give his child away because of a horrific sin and then his son would have to suffer a life of squalor and then he gets to be king for a while and then because of his father's sin he's gonna have this like magic rival because of Merlin's sin his whole the whole next generation is gonna have to fight their their way up from destitution and from squalor it's an interesting thing that like this movie is so much about like there is a cost for your sins but it doesn't come from a christian it comes from a practical background that feels very pagan or animist yeah and i love that john borman didn't make this a christian movie he made this uh um fucking like the only shot of a church is terrifying it's like well and the holy grail isn't like they're not like, we need Jesus. They're like, yes. we just need magic. And Merlin's gone. And it's very much a movie taken from a, a pagan perspective or a animus perspective. Or like, he's going back to the roots of English uh, religion, not... He's, he's not casting a modern Christian scope over Merlin, which is so cool. Yeah, and much like, like paganism, I think there's a lot in like the uh, eye for an eye stuff in the Old Testament, like, version of religion, where there is a little bit more of, like, oh, you didn't know you sinned? Too bad. You still have to pay the consequences. And that's something that is very much present here. Like, King Arthur doesn't, like, mean to sleep with Morgana, right? Like, that is a thing that happens to him. He, Yeah, exactly. Does not know that's his sister, but it doesn't matter. Like, he still has to pay for that. And that's very much, like, an old-school sense of justice where um it has it the intent doesn't matter at the end of the day you fucked your sister and there's major consequences that you will personally pay and need to atone for and you talk about old school justice like that's a really good thing to to harp on with this movie because there is a trial by combat Mm -hmm. sir gawain which is played by liam neeson and one thing you talk about uh earlier is you talked about these movies feeling like uh idea machines for kids like, you're yeah. like, oh, I want to see you with this, 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 this. Like, I want to see uh, I want to see a movie about Excalibur that's just about Gawain. I want to see a movie set, made by John Borman that's just about Gawain and the Green Knight, which is like a cool little, like, classic English story. And I wish that we had more time with him. I wish we had more time with uh, Patrick Stewart's character kind of disappears from this movie as well. A lot of uh, people disappear. Yeah, I wish we had more time with him um, because they basically outlive their purpose for yeah, the story, right? The story is is merciless. It's not a sentimental movie, which I love about it. The sense that that there's a huge world happening around this and we're just getting a scope into it to follow Arthur is so refreshing and so fun because like the movie trusts us to do our own world building. It's not like there's going to be five more sequels. As much as I would love for this movie to have a bunch of sidequels, we don't get them. And we don't need them. Our brains. Can yeah, fill the, in the, the rest main of the thing I want is more Morgana, more Mordred. I kept referring to him as Morgan Le Fay, and her as Morgana, which I think is sometimes used, but in this movie, it's Mordred. I think that that sense of universe here is so wonderful, and it, it makes everything seem so big and universal. But however, it's not. It's it, it's not setting up other stories, which is like feels very old school. It's mm-hmm. not like it's not like. Eh, we're going to see this uh, peasant boy again in Peasant Boy and the Wasp next summer. 
Peasant boy, let more mud. <laughs> Peasant boy, here we go again. Yeah, who had to fix the stone, though? Peasant boy. Peasant boy. There's a hole in this stone. No one cares while they're off. <laughs> Sorting it up. People can be important to history as it's happening. And then if they don't stick around long enough to write about it or make an influence on the telling of the tale, they're just side characters. I, I love that John Borman treats it all as like ruthlessly pragmatic about a story that's very big. And he needs to tell you a two-hour movie, and he's not interested in telling you this wishy-washy version. Like, he wants to tell you what he thinks the story is. Yeah, very much so. It is very much a horror movie in its final act and it's because john borman knows how to creep you out he doesn't he knows not just to use specific iconography but the score is wonderfully eerie all the set design yeah what green lushing and waterfalls turns to just fucking garbage town yeah john borman's direction really shines here and the whole movie is so lush and gorgeous and he knows when to lean into the surreal like during that opening sequence where uh uther ride that fog over to the castle the castle looks so incredibly lit and gorgeous and lush and this fog looks magical in a way it doesn't look like a fucking smoke machine like it does in some like bad horror movies and the whole last act is that like it looks like the country of england is descending into hell it looks like it's sinking into the mud yeah well and the and the outfit too that uh mordred wears is so fucking creepy and the actor is so (sighs) yeah it's like a greek it's gold greek god kind of thing yeah like curl hair and stuff like it's way creepier than you can even describe it as because it has this sort of like dead-eyed statuary feel yeah that uh makes it uh feel like the decadence of an evil god it feels very this isn't a um a cheap god this is a god that can revel in gold and filth and yeah the end of the movies where you're like oh yeah he directed zardos yeah exactly <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah oh yeah because it's been pretty it's had a lot of magical elements, but then it just gets fucking nuts. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay. That's this. The first part, two-thirds, is like deliverance, John Borman. And then the last third is like Zardoz, baby. It's very much Zardoz. It's very much a an insane kaleidoscopic vision of what this final apocalyptic battle would look like. And I love it for that. I love that it doesn't look like... Even though, like, I was comparing to Game of Thrones earlier, like, Game of Thrones' strength is sort of its, like... Cinematic scope. It's cinematic scope and the fact that it's sort of, like, BBC with a budget. Yeah. Like, it's very much about, like, a sober telling of the story, right? There's not a lot of dramatic flourishes. And this Borman's, like... There's handy cam and people are rolling in the mud and there's like sweeping tracking shots. Like he knows when to throw the style on. He felt like a dude that was always very excited about his projects, even if maybe he wasn't. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and this is this is I mean, Borman's done some good stuff. I know we, we're hoping to talk about Zardoz at some point uh, in the near future, which is a movie I just saw for the first time a couple years ago. And it was it was a movie that I knew as a joke primarily mainly from the outfit that Sean Connery wears and was like, oh, no, this is a five-star movie. Like, I love this movie. This is amazing. Uh, Deliverance, we we had an early episode on. But, like, this this is probably, after Deliverance, his biggest hit. This was, like, a big hit. It did re- – like, it made, like, triple its budget. 
Um, and just isn't something that just, you know, it has a, it just isn't out there. It, it feels like, oh yeah, that old movie as opposed to something that's like considered a bonafide classic. Yeah. And I think it's all, I mean, some of that might be its weirdness. Maybe like my high school English teacher didn't want to show that to me. Like I love the occult nature of it. Like the, the sort of pagan themes of it and the fact that it doesn't, it never feels Judeo-Christian to me. Um, it feels like it's pulling from different religious traditions Mm -hmm. and like uh, particularly those shots of, um, Morgana giving birth and she, she's surrounded by these like black cloaked midwives. Like that's deeply occultic. Like it has like a very special power to it. And Helen Mirren, who's this very good. She's just been this like, I don't know, sex symbol dash respectable actor dash can do whatever the fuck she wants for forever so like i remember when people were like oh my god i can't believe she did red the, she, she played the queen and we're being like dude she was in fucking caligula like yeah, no, you no know, shit. this is what happens with british actors like they get old and respectable and everyone's like i'd like to see her captain and uh, captain and enterprise in there that would have been great i mean she talks about how much she wants to be in the fast and the furious movies and it's just it's great yeah. um but she uh it's like Richard Harris, like everyone's like, oh, Dumbledore, he's such a, such a sweet old man. And I'm like, the first movie I ever saw Richard Harris in uh, was probably uh, Orca, where he plays a dude who jaws rip off, who helps perform an abortion on a killer whale and then regrets it. And then the killer whale is trying to murder him the whole movie. And then he's yelling at the whale, like very unrespectable. Well, the killer whale knows that life begins at conception. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's not that bad of a killer. <laughs> um, uh, all in jest. All in just jest. In case, just in case anyone is. Did this movie give you Dark Souls vibes at all? Um, not really, actually. But which is surprising for me. Um, but I just see Dark Souls as so singular. It's not something that I usually draw parallels to naturally. But no, I can totally see it. The arguing over like Morgana uses like this petty magic this like dark petty magic and yet it still has a ton of power yeah is it like the pyromancy from the demon ruins yeah and there's in the the line merlin has there are other worlds this one is done with me like yeah that's great he's getting summoned into someone else's game there's literally a crystal cave Uh uh-huh yeah yeah. But there's there's a there's a sort of Dark Souls feel because I think Dark Souls took like dark fantasy but like didn't ignore the goofy parts of it. It contextualized yeah. them into a story. And I yeah. think that's why it reminds me of Dark Souls. Yeah, no, it like now that you say that, it, I feel stupid for not seeing the parallels. I would be very surprised if uh if this wasn't watched by the game's creator. I mean, I'm sure he was like a Yeah, cuz he was sword. he was so big into western myth. Yeah. That that was his whole thing. Like he read all these western myth stories, but like um he didn't understand all the words uh because he was reading them in English and he didn't wasn't fluent when he was a kid. So like he had to put together the parts he didn't understand into his own story, which is like that's Dark Souls. That's yeah. basically how he did it. So it makes complete sense. We had to play that that same game of telephone when we were putting together Dark Souls story. Yeah. Like we basically got his own experience. Yeah. And I love the like giggling demon boy clad in gold. Like that feels very Dark Souls. Like I just love the the horror infusion into, into these fantasy movies really makes them sing for me. And, and like I like Game of Thrones, but Game of Thrones thinks like The Walking Dead is horror. Like, there's nothing in Game of Thrones that's scary. It's 
like scary to the characters, which is different than being scary to the audience. Yeah. And I think for the audience, like it's not that it's not that in the final act of Excalibur that the characters get winnowed down one by one. Like, it's not that that's scary, that they're all getting murdered. It's that it seems to be happening with no fight and no drama. And people don't even get to go out with dignity. People just seem to sort of appear in strange positions. And they've already been dead for an impossible amount of time. (laughs) Like, there are skeletons and and Percival seems to have lost them like five minutes ago. Like, that, that, all that shit is so much scarier because, like, Percival is is trapped in it almost feels like cosmic horror at that point like yeah. Percival is 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 trapped in some sort of dream dream horror a nightmare um and that's what makes the last 20 minutes so wonderful like the yeah. dead hanging nights by the trees um all the hallucinations you said like a David Lynch nightmare like yeah the the the, the skeletons by the trees is like a forgotten moment in like horror set design <laughs> I know. It's so good. And, and it's so cool how Percival just basically becomes the protagonist of the second half of the movie because our we watch our protagonist fade into oblivion. And all he yeah. can do is he can't do his own quest. He's now the old man. He needs to send somebody else off to do it. And I, I love that that is in a movie so much about intergenera- intergenerationality that that makes a perfect sense. Like he's like, I am tainted. I I need somebody from the next generation to take up the crown, take up the fight and do this because like I my hands are too dirtied. I can't do this. No, I agree. It's a it's a really, really good movie that is ripe for rediscovery. Is there any other final moments? What the, the one big moment that um, not really a lot to talk about, but just I love. I love that when they finally raise the Lady of the Lake and she gives the sword. That that's something that freaks out Merlin too. I love the idea of something so primal that even like this all-powerful interdimensional wizard is like, holy shit, yeah, she came back. That is, yeah, what she is very powerful. And Merlin is is the beating heart of this movie, and he's like he's like morally upright, but also kind of petty. He weirdly kind of wanders the castle with like no. I ambition. mean, he's morally upright for someone who's like. I'll let you rape this woman. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's like he, he's I, like I don't semi, know if he's but but he's also the conscious the conscience of the movie at times is what I mean. He's working for a purpose that in the context of the movie, not to excuse some of his not great behavior, but in the context of the movie, he's just working at a different level. Like he is playing <laughs> three-dimensional chess, and so sometimes you kind of understand what he's doing. But a lot of times, both the audience and the characters are like, yeah, he's he's crazy is not quite the right word. He just – his brain doesn't work like ours because he's seeing all these things that, like, our brains can't comprehend. And there's uh, one more Dark Souls line that I want to point out. Merlin is on the roof basically announcing he's going to die. And he says, it's time for men. The gods of old are gone. Merlin is basically saying, like – this is why you don't have magic right now, England, is because uh, it's it's fading out of existence. I'm going to fade out of existence. But yeah. there was a time of magic. The age of fire has gone. Yeah, the age of fire has gone. You're, the age of man has risen. You think he kindles the flame? Would Merlin kindle the flame? I mean, yeah. I guess he doesn't. Yeah, I guess he doesn't. He maybe? just leaves. He just leaves. This is riveting for like 
2% of our audience. Good stuff. I do just love Helen Mirren in this. Yeah, she's very good. Because she doesn't take the opportunity like some bad British actors took to playing the Bond, or good British actors that were just feeling lazy, took to playing Bond villains and the, and the like, where they're just like, oh, I got to be, I got to be a villain. Place like she's like, I've got fucking goals, motherfucker. Like this is, this is what I want to do. And then when it finally arrives, like there's a sense of pathos that she's like, something evil is here and it's out of my hands. Like that is all so refreshing for a villain because like it gives you some pathos for her but most of all it gives you an understanding where she didn't realize she was becoming the villain yeah she well she just was a merlin fan girl for a little bit yeah and then and then was like you're not gonna teach me good magic oh i'm gonna find that good magic um yeah yeah so i i guess my final thoughts is that it is you know it's definitely a brutal movie with some uncomfortable themes which is close to the Arthurian myth, but also not like, you know, again, I was always surprised how dark this movie was. And it, it's even darker upon a rewatch as well when uh, I was like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of fucking incest. So there's a lot of content warnings around this movie, but it is both incest, I think, the rape. Those, uh, those were rough. And, uh, you know, I could see people understandably not being interested in the movie on those grounds, but... I will say just from a – it is it is a just a weirder movie than I think you'd expect. It does something with uh, both magic and realism that I think most movies have a really hard time getting. Um, and is, is ultimately, like we've said many times, like if you want to see the King Arthur movie, the one that is a good movie and hits a lot of the points of the legend, um, this this is what you got. <laughs> yeah. I One thing I love about it – is that just to wrap up your final thought with my own, it's very clear that John Borman is taking a subjective camera view of all these events. Like he's adding a lot of flourishes, a lot of, of uh, close cuts, a lot of he's directing his actors to be crueler than it seems like he's not directing his actors like seem heroic when you're doing this awful thing. And the fact that Borman, I think, understood that so many of these characters are hideous to a modern perspective and leaning into that and saying like, you know, this power corrupts and, you know, there's there's forces out there that turn well-meaning men into villains. And all of that is just so much more interesting to me than these sort of like good and evil fantasy tales. And to see something that I always interpreted as a kid as a good and evil fantasy tale, like King Arthur and all the assholes that stand in his way. Yeah. <laughs> as an adult like actually getting to like read the stories he and, stood and in his own way yes that like it, it is a tragic tale yeah the fact that borman took this on with such a confidence and such a a sense a love but also a like a sense to audit the material like he was like all right uther is a straight-up villain like and he gets into that right away and the movie treats Uther's act as an act of violence. They're playing, they're, they're showing fire and evil music playing when Uther assaults a woman. That sort of heavy hand really makes some of the acts of evil in this palatable because you're like, okay, this is the story. You're not lying to us about what the story is. These acts of evil directly drive the plot. Like the rape and the incest and all of that in the, in this movie is all plot driving mechanics. 
They weren't put in yeah. for salacious reasons. Like the authors of that weren't like, and uh, eh, for all you perverts out there that are into incest, which is the Game of Thrones thing, right? Like we got to show some tits in this one, like. Or finally, like, give them some dick. Like, yeah. yeah. When Game of Thrones stepped out of the BBC zone was when it started humoring that incest is hot too much. Yeah. <laughs> like, for a little bit, for a little bit, I was like, okay, I get what they're doing. That, like, incest isn't necessarily, like, two ugly people humping in a shack. It might be, like, two beautiful people, but it doesn't mean that it's, like, any more of a healthy act. And then the show, like, leaned into that. And they're like, let's have, a, like, a really hot scene where these two beautiful people fuck. And you're like, but why are you doing this? Why am I watching incest propaganda? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this movie never does no. that at all. It's... it's- incest anti-gamma and anyway every part yeah. every act of every act of, of violence in this movie every act of sexual violence plot driving so that's that's yep. important to note and like i think that john borman made the wise choice to adding this incredibly subjective point of view to the movie and he wasn't just like here's the story again he's like here's how i look at the story and i love borman for that yeah no, it's a really good movie. It's a it's a good movie to kick off our our next our this month. And I make you know it was one of the ones I was really excited to talk about uh, and revisit when we talked about doing this month again. So yeah, next week we're we're keeping on the the fantasy train. A little twist with Return to Oz, which I am very excited to watch again. And then we're doing Time Bandits and uh, one that Peter pushed for that I haven't seen. The Company of Wolves, the Neil Jordan movie. So, not all sword and sorcery stuff, but we got a lot of zigs. We got a lot of zags for our uh, take two of Dark Fantasy Month. I'm very excited for it, Peter. And excited to do the show and a bunch of other shows and for also your Ernest podcast to be ending and all in 2019. (laughs) (laughs) The Ernest podcast will be ending early 2019. Can't wait. Which opens us up. Marcus and I to do another, maybe more annoying podcast. So I can't wait for everyone to hear it. Okay. All right. Good night. Good night. Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website wltwpodcast.com leave us a comment tell us we're doing a good job only tell us we're doing a good job we're so sensitive we're sensitive boys we're soft boys and uh if you'd like to help other people if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine fine program that we produce at no cost We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. 
I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.